you may have heard that phrase, um, you'll see in your worship guide, I think, uh, that I've titled today's message, don't just stand there, do something. You ever heard that? Don't just stand there, do something. You heard, heard that like, in pop culture and media and stuff? The one thing that comes to my mind when I hear that, and I think you, your mind doesn't necessarily go anywhere. It goes just to a lot of places. But one thing stands out in my mind, and that is the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I think the kid's name was Augustus. I can't remember his last name. Augustus? I'm so sorry. Laney, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, man, that was fantastic. You just made my day, Laney. I love you. Augustus. You know what? Do you want to come? Come just. No, I'm kidding. I, um, <coughs> Augustus. My bad. Sorry. Uh, he falls in the chocolate river. But Wonka, before he falls in, is like, don't do it. You're standing too close. And I'm paraphrasing, Laney. I promise. Please don't quote me on this. But I'm paraphrasing. He says, don't do it. You're getting too close. Don't go in there. It's never been touched by human hands. Don't go near the chocolate river. And what happens? He falls in the chocolate river, and Wonka had warned him, right? He's like, don't do it. You're too close, whatever. And so he doesn't jump in to save the kid. What does he do? <sighs> like this. And the kid's mom is freaking out. She says, don't just stand there. Do something. Because she's perceiving that he is very idle. He's just standing there. And what does he say? You probably know very well what he says, Lanny. He says, help. <laughs> he says, help. Police. Murder. Like that. That's what he says. Really deadpan like that. And that scene just cracks me up. But that phrase is meaning, don't just stand there, do something. What it means is, this is not the time to be idle. But there are times in which standing there doesn't necessarily mean that one is idle. And I think that that is a really important thing for us to understand as we look at our message today. Just because one is standing there doesn't mean that one is idle. Before the apostles were told to go and do, which we're going to look at, that's what the whole book is about, the apostles going and doing, they were instructed to wait and listen, to stand there. Don't just go do something, stand there. Now look, there is no doubt that we are to be doers, but just as important is the need to consider our motivation that mobilizes and sends us on mission into doing. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you the title of next week's message. It's don't just stand there do something. But today, we're not talking about don't just stand there, do something. We're going to flip that junk. Don't just do something, stand there. And I'm going to argue that both of them are extremely valuable to your and my walk with Jesus. Don't just do something, stand there. And I will say, just to reiterate, that is not the same as idle. It's not being idle. It's being intently listening and waiting for God. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 5, and I want you to see kind of where we're going to let this thing unfold, okay? It'll be on the screen behind me. By the way, I mentioned this a lot of weeks. It, there's a Bible right in front of you, probably in that chair rack. You're welcome to open that and look at that. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that. That's why it's there. It's the one time it's important to steal from the church is when you need a Bible, okay? That's why it's there. It's a gift. So let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Luke writes this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. <coughs> now look, as we begin this letter, or this, this book, it starts in a very unusual way. It starts in a, in a very unusual way, and that is that chapter 1, verse 1, mentions this guy named Theophilus. Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus. Now, this isn't rocket science. For, for Luke to say, in the first book, implies that this is the second book. So the question then is, what's the first book, and why is that important? Well, the book of Acts would be considered volume 2. Volume 1, so this is a sequel. Volume 1 is Luke's gospel. And so when Luke writes in the first book, O Theophilus, in fact, you could turn back, we're going to read it in just a moment. But in Luke chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 4, that's the real prologue of the volume 1 and volume 2. He mentions the same guy, Theophilus. Because he says, already in the first book, I've told you a story. Luke was a physician, historian, uh, really good with his Greek, and probably was, was both had some Greek and maybe dual citizenship. He spoke with eyewitnesses, and he compiled an eyewitness testimony of events. And his eyewitness testimony of events was the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which again we'll read in just a moment, he addresses Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus, which I think is just a really cool way of addressing someone. Most excellent Theophilus. What a name though, right? That likely means that Theophilus was a man of status or wealth. Um, in ancient uh, or ancient Middle Eastern scribal composition experts, they suggest that the initial copy of Luke's work, that's volume one and volume two, it probably cost roughly $4,000 in today's currency to produce and publish. In other words, what Luke was doing in writing volume one and volume two was extremely expensive. And so he likely needed help with funding and with circulation of his volumes. And it's a good chance that Theophilus is our guy. He's the sponsor, perhaps, for Luke. Just a cool detail. And so speaking of the gospel, because it is the very beginning, it does provide a fuller introduction, prologue, for the whole story. And so I want to read the gospel according to Luke before we look at the Acts of the Apostles according to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, a lot of people have written down what Jesus did. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. That's his way of saying this is something that isn't just written down, but it's been passed down. In fact, Luke is the only one that tells a lot of details about the birth narrative of Jesus that really only Mary could have known. And so likely that Luke interviewed Mary. I mean, he really did his homework to interview all these people to build a very good historical um, script of what exactly happened. Let's keep going. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Listen to this last part. Here's the reason why he's writing these things. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the question then is, what's our genre? I mean, this is truly an introduction. The first summary, we've got to understand this book, right? What's our genre? What exactly is the book of Acts? Well, it's historical, it's narrative, meaning he tells a history of events, but it's not just historical narrative. There, is the, there are theological components built into it. Is it sermons? Is it history? Is it a story? What is it? It's, it's yes, it's all those things. But really, at its very core, we have to understand that this is a theological book. It is meant to teach us about who God is and who we are called to be in response to who God is. 
These events are to profoundly impact our lives. That's why he says that you may have certainty, faith, concerning the things that you have been taught. And that's true of story, right? Story molds us. <coughs> your life is a story. If narrative is meaningful, it changes us. And your life is a story. Things happen in your narrative that have impacts. They may be small things. They may be big things. You may stub your toe. That has impacts on the next 30 seconds that come out of your mouth, right? Because that little event isn't just an event. It has little ripples. Or maybe something bigger. A pay raise is just an event. A pay raise is just a number on a page, but you would say, no, it's more than that. It's money in a bank account. But I would say it's even more than that because it has ripples of true impact. It's not just money in an account. It is food on a table. It is shelter. It's a mortgage. It is a vacation full of wonderful memories that you remember for a lifetime. It's swimming lessons. It's all because it has ripples. And things of significance that happen in our lives are not just part of our story, they have impactful ripples that reach very far and wide. This is just a story, but is it? It has big ripples, right? Ripples so vast that it reaches 2,000 years into the future, and by the way, forever more into the future. It's just a historical sequence of true events. But Luke's aim is to show us that those true events had and have real ripples of real meaning for our lives forevermore. Acts is a historical documentation of profoundly powerful events that revolutionized and set the course for millions of lives forever. And so I've said a lot of weighty things already. I simply do that because it's hard to overstate how important this book is. Without it, God's redemptive plan is incomplete. I mean, it's a big deal. We say, well, the Gospels are the biggest deal. Well, we have this because God's plan of redemption is incomplete without this part of the story, and it's our story. Without it, we don't know the way forward. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the way forward for us this morning, standing there, but also looking forward. And I've got three components within that idea that I want to talk about, standing there and looking forward. Number one is looking backward to look forward. <coughs> <coughs> looking backward to look forward. I said a moment ago that this is sort of the prologue of the book of Acts, meaning it's sort of the introduction. It recaps, you may have noticed this in, in Acts, it recaps past events but also previews future events. It looks back to Luke's gospel before it pushes forward into this story. Guys, the fact that Luke thought it necessary to write a second volume implies that this author, that Luke, thought the gospel story was incomplete without the church's story. And so we can consider this like a story, the next act. It's act two. Look at verses one and two with me. <laughs> and by the way, keeping in mind the things that happen in the gospel of Luke. And we won't, we won't totally assume some information because we'll call back to some of it. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We'll talk about that in just a second. Until the day when he was taken up, that's his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's kind of a mouthful, but I'm going to focus on just a couple of things here. As I said a moment ago, it talks a lot about what Jesus did. I mean, already, right out of the gate. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And again, right, maybe right above these words in your Bible, it says something like the Acts of the Apostles. And I just want to reiterate 
it's not really the acts of the apostles. I mean, the acts of the apostles are nothing if not for the acts of God, right? So this book is really all about God at work. Luke's beginning focus is not the Spirit, and it's not the disciples, it's Jesus. His focus is Jesus right out of the gate, and that just tells us something very important, and that's that Christ, even if he is at the throne ascended, guess what? He's active. Christ is still active, and that is woven through the pages of this book. He says here, all that Jesus began to do and teach until his ascension. The Greek word for began, it refers to someone initiating an action, but it's also usually followed by a couple of infinitives, meaning to this and to this, to further explain that action. So that's what he does. All that Jesus began, what does it say next? To do, to teach. That's what the very next thing. The modifier there is that his beginning was by doing and by teaching, by working and by helping people to understand his teachings. And so we could say that in book one, the gospel, that is his beginning. It's his beginning, doing, and teaching. And so book two, the implication is that the work of Jesus is ongoing. What I mean by that is that it says, these are all the things that Jesus began to do. But don't you hear the, the implication there is that this, these are all the things then that Jesus is still doing. These are his beginnings. Now let's look at volume two of his continuation of those things. His ongoing work, the revolution, continues forward. Guys, the mission that Jesus began was to be taken up by his disciples. And by the way, the mission that Jesus began is taken up by us. We are simply continuing his work that began so long ago. And that history is important. You know, I was never really into history. I struggled with history in middle school and high school. And even in college, I had to take a history class, and that was a close one. Um, but I had a seminary professor. His name was uh, Haken. Michael Haken was his name. He um, was a church history professor that said something. He said something so simple, but it forever changed the way that I look at history. And I've been fascinated by history ever since then. This is what he said. Very simple phrase. He said, a plant cannot exist without its roots. So he said. And like, I remembered that and like, I couldn't sleep that night. That's an exaggeration. I could sleep anytime. But I thought about that. I was like, man, that is such a profound statement. And it's, it's so simple. A plant cannot exist without its roots. But I have remembered that to this very day. And that is to tell me that whether it be U.S. history, world history, the history of the White House, we always say that if you don't know history, history will then, you're doomed to repeat itself, right? It's just another way of saying that a, a plant is nothing. It's dead without its Roots. We as a church will wither and die if we do not know the things that plant us, root us, sustain us. What do roots do? They give us life. And that is so true of God's church. And so my argument today is to help you understand that to understand the church, to understand what we are supposed to do, the church and its life and its mission, we must first understand Jesus and his life and his mission because he is the root of the church, fellowship. To understand what and who we are, you must understand Jesus. You want to know what your life is supposed to look like? Look at Jesus. If you don't find it in Jesus, you're a dead man walking, a plant without its roots. Who he was and what he was all about. But also, we must understand the movement of the early church. If we want to be a healthy church, the book of Acts is Church 101. That's why it's so important. What is the church? If it is disconnected from its roots, it's dead. And so to understand your life and your purpose, you must first understand Jesus' life and his purpose and the movement of the church. 
And certainly the engine of all of those things is the good news of the gospel. That is the engine, man. We, it's not about Sunday school. It's not about church attendance. What's the, root of the, the roots of the church? It's not about curriculum. It's not about whether we have chairs or pews. It's not about the style of music we have. What's our roots? It is the gospel. And other things may come and go. They may change over time. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that rescues sinners from eternal condemnation, delivers them to eternal life in the name of Jesus, that menu must never, ever change if this is going to be a healthy church. That's our lifeblood. It's our roots. And we have to know that. That's why this is volume two and not volume one. Luke is bringing this as a continuation of the main thing. We need to look at Jesus. And so the second thing that I want you to see is that we need to be looking upward to look forward. Looking upward to look forward. That's what Jesus did, man. Jesus was always looking upward. And I don't just mean looking to his father. I mean his, his whole mojo was all about the kingdom. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom. And so I'm going to suggest to you that if we are to look forward, if Jesus looked at the kingdom, we got to look to the kingdom. Jesus mentions that word kingdom, his kingdom, over 100 times in the Gospels. That's just in writing. Think about how many times that we don't have his words on paper that he was talking about the kingdom. I mean, that must have been his favorite subject to talk about. We use the word heaven more likely. Sometimes we say, well, what do you think heaven will look like? We, you know, when you die, you go to heaven. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. That's correct. If we're in Christ Jesus, we go to heaven. But Jesus' preferred word for glory after death was not heaven. He mentions the word heaven, but his preferred word was kingdom. He loved the word kingdom. And by the way, still half the times that he mentions the word heaven, you can find the words kingdom of right before it. Because Jesus was all about the kingdom. Meaning that Jesus was focused less on the physical space of glory, and he was more focused on the one that was enthroned there. In fact, in Mark 1.15, when Jesus is really getting the party started with his ministry, it says, Mark 1.15, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he has those two things hand in hand. The gospel is the kingdom, and it is at hand. There is no good news of the gospel without the kingdom and king for whom it stands. Look at verse uh, 3. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Talk about that in a moment too. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, you guessed it, the kingdom. The kingdom of God. This is Jesus alive after his suffering. He appeared, right? For 40 days, he was out and about doing ministry. 40 days, man. Sometimes we think about Jesus like walked out of his grave, and then he kind of like shook off his whatever he had on, although he probably left some clothes in there. Those were probably pretty rank. But he walks out of there, and I think we think that he just goes from tomb to like a hilltop, and then he's just gone. That's not the way it happened, man. For 40 days, Jesus hung around, and it says that he did that to show them some proofs. Just for, for reference, you think, what is 40 days? 40 days ago was July 4th. Do you remember what happened on July 4th this year? Whatever you did that day, that was 40 days ago. That's a little bit of time, you guys. I mean, that's a little bit of time for Jesus to have been living and operating in his earthly ministry right here. Forty days he was doing things. It says that he was showing proofs in verse 3. By many proofs he appeared to them. What kind of proofs? Well, he's exactly who he said he was, and he wanted to prove that. He wanted to prove that he was a crucified but risen Messiah in order to strengthen their faith in him. 
What kind of proofs? Well, Jesus appeared with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The end of Luke also tells us that he ate with his disciples. It also tells us that his boy Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until I see him. And Jesus said, bring it, brother. And so he stuck his hand in his side to show him proof. I am exactly who I say that I am, a proof. He also appeared to many people at different times. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 says this. For I delivered to you, as this is Paul, by the way. For I delivered you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died. He did, he died. Paul is saying, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. What do you do to bury things? What kind of people do you bury? Dead people. He said Jesus really died. He was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 5 then says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The reason I read that is to let you know that Jesus did not just sneakily walk out of his grave and then sneakily go over to Hilltop and then sneakily just scurry off into heaven. For 40 days, he hung around, and it was very, very real and confirmed that this dude was alive again. And he wanted it to be so. Why? Proofs. So that people would know. The proofs had a purpose. And that was preparation for his disciples as they looked forward. I mean, what could prepare them and excite them more to buy into the mission than the one that died for it coming back to life? Whoa, this is real. This is for real. He's alive. Let's do this thing. 40 days, it says. I love this. It says, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Those 40 days were um, interesting. So, okay, when you see 40 in the Bible, there's a few different places you see the number 40 in the Bible, and you may already be thinking ahead of me on this. Those 40 days, or 40 of anything, 40 years, 40 days, is almost always for some sort of, I will say, you know what, it is always for some sort of preparation. The significance of the number 40 is used in seasons of preparation. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. You know why? Because God was preparing them to enter the land of promise. Moses was on Mount Sinai, which went by a different name at the time, was, in, was on the mountain for 40 days in preparation to receive God's law. And then it was called Mount Sinai. But 40 days, he was there in preparation for receiving God's law. Jesus was tempted for how many days? 40 days and 40 nights. He was tempted for 40 days before beginning his public ministry. And this is really cool. Now, he spends 40 days with his disciples before they begin theirs. I mean, that's just so neat. Clearly, there is an instance of preparation that Jesus is trying to emphasize with his disciples. The the apostles were prepared witnesses. In those 40 days, it was for their preparation. Preparation for what? What Jesus is about. Doing and teaching. Doing and teaching. Doing and teaching. He began the work. The disciples continued the work. Doing and teaching. Teaching what? The kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, this is really cool. I don't know I keep saying that, but it's a cool, I mean, the, the Bible's kind of cool. I don't know what else to tell you. Maybe I should think of a cooler word to say those things. I don't know. Here's what's really neat. Immediately following Jesus's 40-day temptation, which again was meant for preparation, Jesus taught about the kingdom. 40 days of preparation for his earthly ministry, 
He goes straight to the synagogue after that. And Luke 4, 14, I'm telling you, go turn there. Go turn to Luke chapter 4 real quick. It's just not far. Luke chapter 4. <coughs> Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 through 20, 21. <coughs> I want you to turn there because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see the part that comes right before this. What is it? It's the temptation of Jesus. Immediately after those 40 days of temptation, it says the very next thing in chapter 4, verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned, oh, I love these words, in the power of the Spirit. He returned in the power of the Spirit. In other words, he needed the Spirit of God in order to do his earthly ministry. There are big parallels there between what he's about to do for his disciples. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the uh, the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues. I'll let you guess what he was teaching about. Being glorified by all. Verse 16 then says, And he came to Nazareth. This is his hometown. So this is where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. (laughs) I love this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So they handed him the scroll that was the book of Isaiah. It was given to him. (coughs) He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. He's going to Isaiah 61. It says, quote, Jesus is reading this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading Isaiah though, okay. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives. And recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the time has come. So Jesus is preaching Isaiah, and he keeps saying, the time has come, the Spirit is here. I mean, he can't lay this on thick enough. Verse 20 then says, and he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And then it says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The Greek there reads like this is this big, dramatic, attention-getting moment where everybody looks at him. He reads this very obscure passage, and they all look at him. This young dude is reading, clearly rabbinical reading. He's very smart, and they look at him like, what's he going to say? And his commentary is what it says in verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Man. I wish I could hear a Jesus sermon. You know what I mean? I mean, that's like the ultimate mic drop moment where he's like, I pick up this whole, yeah, give me the scroll. I'll take it, whatever. And then he reads this thing about the Messiah coming, the Spirit of God filling this person. He talks about um, good news to the poor, gospel to the poor is what he's saying. He says, liberty, freedom to those that are imprisoned. We've been imprisoned to sin for a long time, humanity has. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing freedom from that. Recovering of the sight to the blind. Jesus healed blind eyes physically, but man, didn't he restore spiritual sight? He says, I set the liberty those who were oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor, he rolls it up. They say, what are you going to say about that? And he says, man, today it's happening. The power of the gospel, the kingdom of God. You see, he claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, the King. But in Nazareth, he was rejected for that. They said, no, nah, I man, get out of here. In fact, they tried to stone him and he escaped is what the Bible says. Can you imagine Jesus' 40-day preaching after he proved it. This is before. And he's, he's pumped, man. He's mic dropping all over the place. And this is just one example. 
Can you imagine the told you so in his voice when he did it with a glorified existence? He says, you see, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Man, I can't imagine his preaching after resurrection. I just imagine him picking up that same scroll and preaching it again with a new voice and it being heard with new ears. Praise God. You know, he claimed these things pre-resurrection, but post-resurrection, it had been proven. These apostles saw, they spent time with the risen Jesus. They were convinced that Jesus was alive, that it really was him, that he had really defeated the grave, and truly the kingdom had come, a kingdom movement that promised, by the way, no fame for the disciples, no money, no name for oneself, no earthly gain, that promised suffering, in fact, promised mockery, promised shame, and all the like, and yet the disciples willingly followed, and most eventually were martyred because they were so convinced, hear this, that the value of Christ's eternal kingdom far outweighed any gain to be had in any kingdom that we could build, that they could build, or any part of the earth could possibly provide. They were so convinced that dying for Jesus was worth more than anything in the world because he proved it, and they saw it. And Luke wrote it so that even though you didn't see it, you would believe it. Come on, man. That is the power of God. The kingdom come. Paul echoes this, and he wants the same thing for you and for me. Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. It's all loss, he says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul knew that. An American missionary by the name of Jim Elliott knew that, who gave his life. And Jim Elliott, who gave his life as a martyr, killed at the hands of the people that he was trying to preach the gospel to, he's famously quoted as saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. A man who gave his life because the next one he saw was infinitely of greater value. Guys, which kingdom are you invested in? Which kingdom are you invested in? Are you too busy looking around to look up and see that this kingdom around us is decaying, but that one has a king who will live forever? And Lord willing, it won't require you to lay down your physical life as a martyr, but are you willing to lay down your pride to meet the needs of others? Are you willing to lay down your money to meet the needs of others and bless the needs of others? Are you willing to lay down your time to sacrifice for the good of others? You see, far too often, we get out of bed and immediately we start looking around before we look up. We look around and say, this is the way forward. When in reality, we don't need to go forward unless we stop and stand there and say, I'm a kingdom ambassador today before I'm a parent, before I'm a student, before I'm a worker, and fill in the blank. Before you are anything, you are Jesus' child, and you are to make much of him in all that you do. And when we don't look up, we march forward, but feel like we are marching in quicksand because this kingdom is not one worth living for. We should look upward before we look forward. Kingdom, man. We're going to talk about that a little bit in Acts. It's good stuff.
Third and finally, and that is to look inward before we look forward. <coughs> look inward before we look forward. This next part is interesting because we see a Trinitarian statement here, um, or, or I guess behind the text. When I say that, I just mean we see evidence of the Father, Son, and the Spirit right here in these couple of verses. <clears throat> Look at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, don't miss that, he's with them. This time he's with them, 40 days. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's Trinitarian because you have the Son who tells the apostles about the promise of the Father concerning the Spirit. It's just kind of neat there. They would need help, the disciples would. They would need help for the mission to which they would be called. And so Jesus instructs them to stay put for a while because God will fulfill the promise of empowering his people for the mission ahead. What Jesus is saying is, don't just do something, stand there. He said, don't just go, just hold on a second. Just wait and stand there and be patient. The statement about baptisms ends the prologue. We end the prologue in verse 5. And this statement about baptism not only ends the prologue, but it also sort of looks back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and forward to the beginning of the church. So in other words, you have two baptisms that sort of bookend the beginning of this ministry. Jesus' ministry began with his baptism, and the disciples' ministry now begins with their being baptized in the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Jesus, in other words, did not begin his public ministry before receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I want to read real quick about his baptism, or the, the events that took place right after. Luke 3, 21 and 22. It says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, it says, the heavens were open. Pause for just a second. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is going to descend on God's people, it also says it came from the heavens. He came from the heavens, the Spirit. It's pretty awesome. Verse 22 says, And the Spirit, again, the heavens were open, and the Spirit descended on Jesus, on him, in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The very next verse, by the way, in Luke 3, begins his temptation, his earthly ministry. He had the Spirit before he went into the wilderness. I mean, consider the model. We receive the Spirit for the hardships that are coming. We're not called to go and face the difficulty of this life before God empowers us to go into it. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is the same way. He's at his, at his baptism. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. He gets out of the water, and the very next thing Luke says is he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. The model is relevant. His preparation included the Spirit of God. Their preparation includes the Spirit of God. Jesus did not walk onto his daily mission field before being empowered by the Spirit of God to face it. It's important, man. The Holy Spirit equips, but he doesn't merely equip. He empowers. The Holy Spirit equips, but he doesn't merely equip. He empowers. I mean, there's a big difference. Can you imagine a general saying, all right, men, line up. You're going to receive your weapons. And he goes by and he doesn't give them Big guns, he gives them butter knives. And you'd say, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound like they're ready for battle. But they're equipped. I mean, but are they? See, there's a big difference between being given something, some sort of equipment, and being given the equipment that empowers one to do the job. Very important here is that God did not just give equipping. 
He gave an empowering equipping. Jesus is saying, don't just rush off and do this without God. Wait for God's empowering. The Spirit wasn't and isn't a glorified self-esteem boost. He is a, an equipping. He is a, an item that we are empowered with to go and make much of Jesus. Guys, the Spirit of God isn't a personal cheerleader that pats you on the back and makes you feel good about your every decision. That's not God. The Spirit is the empowered asset that you have to go into the wilderness of this life and conquer, not by your power, but by the power of God. The power of God indwelling the believer. And so Jesus does the same thing to them. He instructs them not to rush into their mission, but to wait. I'm going to say a phrase that I want you to remember, and that is that God supplies in us what he requires of us. God supplies in us what he requires of us. You're going to hear that a few times over the next little while. In this book, we must be mindful that God supplies in us what he requires of us. Guys, we live in a culture of such busyness. And this mentality, at times, it even finds its way into your church life. And if we're not careful, Christianity can become all about busily doing something. But the danger with being a doer that rushes to the next thing is that we sometimes have a tendency to not consider the intent and the desire of the one that is sending us to go and do. What's God's desire? As we go and do, what am I supposed to do unto him? We don't consider that it must always be God who goes before us as our guide if our doings are going to have any real value or meaning. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is to stand there and realize that you're not called to merely take up your daily routine, but rather to accomplish God's will for you in your everyday life. You're a doer, but you are a heaven-sent messenger, a disciple that is to go and do, empowered by the Spirit of God. So what does that mean? It means, in all things that you do, do it for the glory of God. Do Sunday school, anticipating how God's Spirit will move in your soul. It's easy to just go to Sunday school, to just do something, to just walk up the steps or walk down the hall and get to your place and then sit there and then an hour goes by and you're thinking, what just happened? What did he talk about? I'm supposed to be a better person. Man, that falls short of really why we're called to Sunday school, anticipating instead how God's spirit will move your soul. And that's instead of just doing something, that's pausing and reflecting, how is God going to work here? Do church activities faithfully, hoping God would be glorified. Do Bible study earnestly, seeking a spirit-transformed heart. Do prayer, not because it's the routine, but do prayer in sincerity with fellowship with the Spirit in mind. Do evangelism with faith that God will change hearts by his power in you, not by your strategy and your method. Do church as an equipped, empowered, and sent person of God. Do friendships in a way that you want to reflect God's grace and his mercy toward another image bearer created in Christ for good works. Do your vocation, your schooling, as if working for God, not for man. Do parenting as an extension of Jesus to your children, equipped with grace and mercy and forgiveness and patience and speaking the truth in love. 
Do marriage, seeking to build up your union on the gospel as your standard, not what the cultural expectations or trends are for marriage. Do you see how every aspect of your life, all the hats that you wear in every moment of your life, you can do things just by doing them, or you can do things for the glory of God through the power of the Spirit of God. But that requires, before you are a doer, you stand there. You consider, how do I glorify God in this? And most profoundly, as it applies to the book of Acts, do evangelism, not simply as a doer, but as a God-sent, God-empowered messenger to go and make much of Jesus in all that you say and do. You may think, I'm really bad at evangelism. I just never know what to say. God equips in you what he calls you to. You're not going alone. God equips within you what he requires of you. You know, for the disciples, there was no point in going and fulfilling the mission if God was not with them, if God was not in them. And so they anticipated and they waited. The good news is that while Jesus was talking to people who did not yet possess the Spirit in this moment, we who follow Christ have been filled with the Spirit. Christians have God. You have God. If you're in Christ, you have God in you and through you. The same God who parted seas, who turned water to wine, reversed blindness, walked on water, the list could go on and on. That God has taken up residence in you. You look at the Bible and you see big, miraculous, mountain-moving God, and you forget the fact that that same God is in you. He's in you. Can he not do great things? If he could then, he can now. Are you willing? Are you living for his kingdom or your own? The same God who stood with three men of faith in a fiery furnace without burning, he walks with you in your every circumstance of life, in your fiery trials. He's with you. As we're not neutral free agents, we are sent ambassadors. One thing that's true of even ambassadors in this world is that a nation's ambassador doesn't represent their own values. God doesn't align with your values. What does a good ambassador do? He represents the values. She represents the values and goals of the entity that they represent. God has called you to do things every day that may seem mundane to you. My life is so boring. We're tempted to think that way. But before you just go and do something, we need to stand there and remember the God who has called you to represent him even in the mundane. You think, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. All I do is hang out with my kids all day. Do you not see the value there? All you do is shape minds, and you can do, do so in a way that is irritated and aggravated and impatient, or you can do so in a way that points them to Jesus. And that sometimes means that you apologize to them and say, Mommy needs it just like you do, grace upon grace and forgiveness. And that's just one example, but that's true of all of us. You may think that your life is mundane, but God doesn't waste your appointments. God doesn't waste your conversations. God doesn't waste anything in your life it exists because God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And we may feel like we have nothing to offer. And I would just say, you better believe it. You got that right. 
But God did not call you unto himself because you bring a lot to the table. He called you unto himself because he does. And through the power of God, he can sustain you and empower you and mobilize you. He supplies in you what he requires of you. You know, the book of Acts is interesting. And, I, and I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to walk through this with you guys. But I want you to understand something, and that is that the Acts of the Apostles, more appropriately called the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the lives of the Apostles, is simply Act 2. But there is no Act 2 without Act 1. And today, you've heard me say a lot about Act 2, because that's our life. Those of us that are in Christ are called to go and be about Act 2. But you are nothing without Act 1. And today, some of you need to know that left to yourself, you are nothing but a dead man walking. But God is rich in mercy, and he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. I don't mean to be discouraging when I say this. But before you can walk with us through the book of Acts, you have to understand the things that came before in volume one are what give everything here any legs to stand on. If you have never fixed your eyes on Jesus, seen your need for a Savior, seen your big sin problem that has condemned you before a holy God, if you have never surrendered that and said, God, save me, I believe that Jesus died in my place. Save me. I give my life to you. If you've never done that, then the book of Acts will be nothing more than behavior modification for you. And it just stinks. Behavior modification is suffering. Because what happens is you come back the next week and you're in despair because you haven't been good enough. It's either that or you come back in pride thinking wrongly that you've been good enough. But the good news of the gospel is that you could not do anything but stand there in your cursed, sinful state. But Jesus did something. Jesus went in your place. The word that Chris used just a moment ago, that he was our substitution. I love that idea. That picture is that Jesus was treated on the cross as if he had lived your life so that you could be treated as if you'd lived his life. So today, we respond. We take the Lord's Supper and we thank God for volume one. But we never must stop and mobilize, be mobilized to go and see about volume two.